Well, good evening. Um, to begin, to say if, if you can't hear me, um, just to let me know, because I'm aware my voice gets rather soft and we haven't, I haven't quite caught on to how loudly to speak. So we've had a time enough to deepen our attention some, and what often happens, there's moments of um, peacefulness and wakefulness, and as many of you have noticed, as we begin to deepen our attention, what's actually revealed is how reactive we are. It kind of shines a light on it in a way. Um, on dukkha, on the unease that's there. And, um, and the first flinch response is we want it to be different. We want it to go away. And sometimes that means we want to go away. And if I did a hand raise on how many of you have had at least some thought of, what am I doing here, or do I, ha-, you know... I didn't ask for it, it's okay. <laughs> It'd be interesting, you know. It actually, it would make it less personal, wouldn't it? <laughs> Um, when we're stuck, you know, when we're identified and reactive, there's always an undercurrent of fear. There's always an undercurrent of something's wrong, something's about to go wrong. And one of my, the understandings that's been most useful to me is that when we have any sense of selfness, of separate selfness, that the primal mood of the separate self is fear. And it doesn't have to be glaring, gripping, angst fear. It can be just a subtle, restless, anxious. It's a self-feeling. So one understanding of the spiritual path, that as we're facing an awakening from a kind of identification with self, we're actually facing an awakening from the grip of fear. It's a lot of what's going on for many of us. A um, story I, I found recently that I thought was illuminating was written by a Ajahn Brahm, and it's about a fellow monk in his monastery who happened to have really bad teeth. And he didn't want to have any anesthesia when his teeth were taken out, so he would travel a long distance to the one surgeon that was willing to do it without anesthesia. But then this guy decided to go one step better. So I'm going to read to you. Um, Allowing a tooth to be extracted by a dentist without anesthetic might seem impressive, but this member of our monastery went one better. He pulled out his own tooth without anesthetic. We saw him outside the monastery workshop, holding a freshly pulled tooth smeared with his blood in the claw of an ordinary pair of pliers. It was no problem. He cleaned the pliers of blood before he returned them to the workshop. (laughs) I asked him how he had managed to do such a thing. What he says exemplifies why fear is the major ingredient of pain. When I decided to pull out my own tooth, it was such a hassle going all the way to the dentist, that didn't hurt. When I walked to the workshop, that didn't hurt. When I picked up the pair of pliers, that didn't hurt. When I held the tooth in the grip of the pliers, that didn't hurt either. When I wiggled the pliers and pulled, it did hurt then, but only for a couple of seconds. 
Once the tooth was out, it didn't hurt much at all. There was really only five seconds of pain. You, my reader, probably grimaced when you read this true story. Because of fear, you probably felt more pain than he did. (laughs) And if you tried the same feat, it would probably hurt terribly even before you reached the workshop to get the pliers. (laughs) Anticipation, fear, is the major ingredient of pain. So the truth is that we spend a lot of time anticipating what's going to go wrong and kind of tensing against our future. That there's, there's kind of a sense that around the corner something's going to happen that's going to be too much for us to handle. And, and we live kind of tensing. And in a way we're tensing against the ultimate loss of our separate self-existence. And the sad thing, as, as we all know, is how many moments we spend worrying and planning and anticipating what's actually happening is those moments we're losing the very thing we want to save, which is the preciousness of being here. So it's a real um, deep part of this path to begin to recognize how we get caught in what I call the trance of fear and how we wake up from it. And I call it a trance because in the moments that we're identified with a sense of separate self, with the feelings and sensations of fear, with the beliefs that go with the fear, in those moments we have forgotten really what we are. We've forgotten the awareness and the love, and the vastness, the mystery of this existence. We've forgotten. So it's, there's a real difference in, that we'll be exploring between fear, which is absolutely natural and necessary, and the trance of fear, when our sense of being contracts and is identified with sometimes what's called the body of fear, that constellation of feelings and emotions and sensations and beliefs. So to begin with, the Buddha, it was, it's very clear that desire and fear as universal energies are themselves not the suffering. In fact, they're natural, necessary parts of being alive. We wouldn't be able to survive. Uh, we're, it's our, our bio-psycho-physiological wiring is all designed to anticipate a problem and be able to act and our body tenses and gets ready so it's supposed to happen and we do and for the more evolved creatures a lot of it happens in the shape of thinking where we anticipate and strategize one of my favorite story survival stories and this is on the good side of you know fear fear driven thought <laughs> um, I have a, a standard poodle so it has to do with poodles Um, A wealthy man went on a safari in Africa and decided to take his beloved pet poodle along for company. One day the poodle started chasing some butterflies and found himself totally lost. Wandering about trying to find his way back, the poodle saw a leopard rapidly heading his way. The poodle thought to himself, "Uh uh-oh. Luckily, the poodle noticed some bones on the ground close by and immediately turned his back to the approaching cat and started to chew on them. Just as the leopard was about to pounce, the poodle called out, Boy, that was one delicious leopard, 
but I'm still hungry. I wonder if there's another one around. (laughs) Upon hearing this, the leopard halted his attack in mid-stride, a look of abject terror on his face. He crawled off into some nearby trees thinking, whew, that was a close call. (laughs) That creature nearly got me. (laughs) Meanwhile, a monkey had been watching this whole scene from high in a nearby tree. The monkey called out to the leopard, promising some valuable information in return for the leopard's protection. The leopard agreed to the deal and, of course, was furious to learn that he had just been made a fool of. The leopard, now with the monkey on his back, took off to find and eat the conniving canine. Once again, the poodle saw the leopard, this time with the monkey in its back, approaching. The poodle quickly put two two and two together while realizing he wouldn't have time for escape. So he sat down with his back to his attackers, pretending he hadn't seen them. And just when they got close enough to hear, he exclaimed, Where is that damn monkey? I sent him off an hour ago to bring me another leopard. (laughs) So clever, conniving minds get us, at least they keep us alive for a while. But as we know, there's a downside to uh, what the Buddha described as nama rupa, which is this um, capacity we have to, fear, to anticipate and think and strategize, which then sets us into fight-flight, which then, of course, generates more thoughts about what's going to go wrong, which then generates more feelings. And then the stronger that gets, the more our sense of who we are is collected around the thinking, feeling, scared, separate self. It becomes who we are. So that's, so there's not a sense when we are on, you know, our thoughts come up of what can go wrong and we act. It's, there's not an enough already. It just keeps spinning off. So part of the inquiry really is, how is it that fear proliferates? And we know that there's this universal tendency to have fear arise and have fear thoughts and feelings. And in our personal lives, our own personal history, um, the experiences of being in danger then can create the, the conditioning for more proliferation. So if we, in our early days, or even recently had traumatic experiences where physical survival was at risk, there's going to be a lot more proliferation. That's for many. For many more, it's very emotionally based. That for most of us, given the culture and given parents that were living with their own fears and grasping, um, they were unable to give us what we most needed to feel emotionally a sense of genuine belonging. I mean, if you ask, what is it a young child most needs to experience? And really, it's to be seen, to really be seen for who we are, and to be loved for that, those two wings. And for most of our parents, they were enough occupied with their own world that, that we became a kind of projection on the screen in some ways, they were preoccupied or afraid or whatever enough so that their capacity to let us know our preciousness, 
our belonging, was somewhat impaired. It was imperfect. And so to different degrees we have what is I've, one, one person calls the wound of unlove, where we don't trust our basic goodness or lovability. And that's very pervasive in our culture, that wound. And I bring it up in a talk on fear because much of our day-to-day uh, clutch of anxiety, if we go under it, is a sense of a not-okay self that's going to fail, that's going to be rejected, that's not going to do it right, that's not going to get where we want to get. We just don't have it in us. There's that kind of message. So what happens is that we all develop strategies to get away from the raw unpleasantness of fear. Every one of us has strategies to not sit with the raw discomfort. And our strategies range, but one of the common ones is that in some way we want to numb or alter our body-mind state. And we do it with food and we do it with drugs. We have all different ways. I'll share for myself one of my ways of soothing my... um, fear of unworthiness is the more, if I can be more productive. So often I'll find myself in daily life drinking that extra cup of black tea or mate, and, and it's like I'm, I'm attached to it as a way to then make me more productive so I can then feel like I'm a better person. So I, it's soothing in some, in some way. And I came back from one retreat, um, and my sister lives near me, and she had, she had a paste, um, scotch taped onto my computer this little cartoon and it had a two couples at a dinner party and one man was was lying with his head in in the in his face in his plate and the caption said hal is now 99% caffeine free <laughs> you know <laughs> i loved it <laughs> our primary strategy for most of us is obsessive thinking when we're thinking, we're not sitting in our bodies where the clutch of fear lives, right? And we're all addicted to thought. We use our thought to... We're constantly trying to figure something out. Have you noticed how many moments there's some sense of trying to figure something out? Trying to gain some ground because there's some basic sense of things aren't okay. William James talked about this ceaseless frenzy. This was a hundred some years ago. Still true. Where we, we have this sense that we're always supposed to be doing something else. So again, this is that kind of existential fear that has us continuing to feel like we have to be doing something. And it's really um, interesting when we watch how Either if our minds aren't busy, we stay physically busy. But it's very hard not to do, to not do. And we can see it in our meditation. If we're not caught in obsessive thinking, then in some way we're trying to steer our meditation. How many of you have seen how perpetual the coach is? You know, okay, now I'll try this, now I'll do that, now I'll go back to this, now maybe I'll open it to that. You know, it's this, we don't stop doing. It's very hard. 
we also um, bring our fears into our relationships very actively in the ways that we manipulate others to try to help them to make us more comfortable. They don't usually cooperate with our agenda, so we have to do it a lot. And you can see how the more anxious you are, the more manipulative you get, the more you kind of need to control. Um, I can watch it with my son so clearly, who's now in college, that when I'm at ease and relaxed, the conversations have a certain kind of quality of... It's like I'm not trying to take them anywhere. When I'm anxious, I'm trying to take them to finding out if he's getting done what he needs to get done for this exam or to make sure he's registered for this major. You know, it's like there's some... Having him perform will help me soothe my anxiety about me performing, you know, so I get control in it. Share with you a little example that I always, that I like. There were 11 people hanging onto a rope suspended from a helicopter. Ten were men and one was a woman. They all decided that one person should get off because if someone didn't, the rope would break and everyone would die. The negotiation began, but no one could decide who should go. Finally, the woman gave a really touching speech saying how she would give up her life to save the others because women were used to giving up things for their husbands and children and giving in to men and not receiving anything in return. They were used to it. And when she finished speaking, all the men started clapping. So we have our strategies. Now one of the biggest strategies is when we're fearful, we not only manipulate, but we attack others. And there really is, there's all sorts of different research and um, describing how we get soothed by putting others down, that our anxiety gets soothed. And they certainly, uh, there's a study I read about rats, which is a horrible study and it shouldn't have happened, but it had rats under of being stressed out and describing how much they, when they were afraid of shocks and so on, how much that, that then all of a sudden they started biting each other. Um, and I, I'm just putting that out there because it's the source of all war. It's, uh, in, in some way, it's our way of managing our inner uh, stress and fear. The biggest place where we, and this is, this is all what I call false refuge. These are false refuges, our strategies for trying to get away from fear. And they're false refuges because they're temporarily refuges. Our system might even, we can eat a whole lot, we do calm it down some. But they're false because not only are they not lasting, but they reinforce a sense of a separate self. They fuel that. So every time we manipulate someone else out of fear, or every time we get lost in our busy thoughts, every time we judge someone else, in some way that sense of a self that's separate and not okay gets reinforced. Our, probably our most pronounced false refuge in the face of fear is to attack ourselves, especially in this culture. And most, many of us are familiar with that, the suffering of that. That out of our anxiety, we actually latch on to judging ourselves. We latch on to beliefs and stories about what's wrong, what's missing, how we're going to fall short, 
And the challenge is that we, we believe it. We believe the judgments and the stories, so of course that reinforces the fear. So I'm describing first the false refuges because if we're to take true refuge in the face of fear, so fear comes up, and how do we really respond in a way that liberates us, that reveals who we are, we first need to catch on what are our strategies of false refuge. Can we begin to see how our obsessive thinking is a way of running away from fear? How our judging is? How even our judging ourselves, if we can name, oh, I'm the problem, at least we start thinking we have some control over the situation. Does that make sense? Yeah. I read um, some years ago part of uh, The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe who describes how um, military test pilots were experimenting at altitudes that that took their planes way beyond the uh, laws of ordinary aerodynamics. And he would describe how when they were crashing and they were going into their final dive, they had recorded what the pilots said. And the pilots inevitably, each one of them was saying, I've tried A, I've tried B, I've tried C, I've tried D. What can I do? What else can I do? What do I do next? And the the solution came when, um, when it, I, I think it was, uh, yeah, Chuck Yeager, was, he was battered unconscious. And so when his plight and when his plane fell, he couldn't do anything. And when he finally came, do, came to, he was in, um, back in the atmosphere, and then he could land the plane, the only one that survived. And so here's what Tom Wolfe writes. He says, so that was the solution. You take your hands off the controls. You sit there and do absolutely nothing but sit there and fall. You take your hands off the controls, Wolfe writes. In fact, that was the only choice you had. So this is the entry point for us, that um, if we want to wake up from the trance of fear, there's a way in which we can choose to stop controlling, stop using these strategies that really are ways of running away. And I'd like to describe um, more for the rest of this talk, really, when fear arises... How do we take true refuge in a way that's not controlling but really is um, the refuge of presence? And um, when we talk about taking refuge in the Dharma, we're really talking about taking refuge in exactly what's here. Zen Master Ryokan said, entrusting ourselves to the waves, that if the waves are fearful waves, taking refuge in the Dharma is that quality of presence that lets us absolutely be there. We're learning to stay. And I love that expression, learning to stay. Pema Chodron's the person I've most heard speak of it. So we start exactly where we are when the body of fear comes into awareness. So let's say you find that you're having obsessing thoughts or you're getting feeling a clutch in the chest, kind of that weight or that racing we start by staying right there. And the process 
of taking refuge in the Dharma, of unconditional presence, has the two qualities, and Susan spoke so beautifully in mindfulness, that we really are recognizing what's happening and allowing it with a real tender presence. Recognizing and allowing. So what I'd like to explore is how that recognition and allowing this unconditional presence, is like a spiral that can go deeper and deeper. Because we can have what I think of as a superficial recognition and allowing. Like, okay, fear's there, okay, I'm going to be with that fear. And yet, it, it doesn't have a deep quality of presence. And what's possible here, as we really learn to stay, is we can spiral into a profound quality of presence that reveals really our true nature. A kind of presence that as we offer presence to fear, we actually discover the love and the awareness that's our source. So I want to explore that. And I thought maybe the way I'd do it tonight is to share with you um, a story of someone I worked with at Spirit Rock for the last month-long retreat last year who came into his first interview and he basically said, I'm just judging everything. He said, you know, there's just nothing exempt. (laughs) And mostly I'm anxious. And um, so I asked him how he was was working with it. And he said, well, what I'm trying to do is concentrate on the breath. But I keep being lost in thought. So either I'm lost in thought or I'm upset with myself at being lost in thought. Okay? So that was his initial, that's what he came in with. So those were his false refuges. He was either taking refuge in thought or he was taking refuge in trying to control his attention. He was controlling himself back to the breath. Very different than gently arriving in an anchor. He was trying to control it. So what I did in that first interview is just what we've been exploring with you, which is I asked, so what, you know, just what's it like inside? What's it, what's it really like this moment? And we spent some time in a kind of out loud meditation, or he'd just name what he was feeling. He'd say busy mind or tight, jittery, uh, fears coming. And I kept having him, whenever he'd go off into a story, just notice it and then come back, really in an embodied way. And so he just started getting the knack of noticing what was here and saying it's okay, or saying yes. Okay, that was the first time. So noticing and allowing. He came back and he said, you know, it's really not working because I'm, I'm definitely noticing and allowing some, but I've never had this much self-aversion in my life. You know, I used to hate myself. Now I really hate myself, you know. It's like I watch myself, the way I'm eating, and the way I'm thinking about how I'm going to go get seconds. And I can't, I just, I can't believe, you know, I can't be here for it. I'm watching myself walk and really thinking about how other people are looking at me walking. Anybody ever had that happen? <laughs> you know, or he, he described how he was, he couldn't stand himself for the way he was judging other people. Like he, he really, he was really thick in, aver- in self aversion, and so I asked him really what it was like to have that going on. What was it like to be feeling that much judgment and aversion? And 
his response was that he felt like he it just put him in that basic place of I'm not this isn't going to work. I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to really get there. I'm not going to be able to make it. There's really something basically wrong with me, so I'm going to fail at meditation. And here I put aside a month of my life, you know. And so when he got to that core belief, it was complete fear. It was like his life wasn't going to work. Okay. So I shared with him um, something that Rachel Naomi Remen wrote that I, I, I brought here tonight, I thought I'd share with you, that I, I think is really good. There are laws of our inner world that bind each of us as firmly as gravity, beliefs we carry about ourselves and about life in general that we experience as true in all conditions and at all times. A feeling of personal unworthiness is one such inner law. One moment of unconditional love may call into question a lifetime of feeling unworthy and invalidate it. So we can offer unconditional love to what's arising. And by that, in a way, I I think of the language of blessing, like the true blessing we can offer ourselves is that kind of unconditional presence and care. And I I love the word blessing, and it came up in one of our groups today. Um, One person in the group described how, for all the different ways she's worked with fear, the one thing that really, really made a difference is when she's just offered a blessing to the fear. And the blessing is really, the essence of the blessing is an unconditional caring presence. Because that's what allows us to come back home to who we really are. So I shared that with him, and then we explored, well, what does it mean, really? How can you, when you're in fear, offer love to the fear? Because your whole biochemistry and mind is not in a loving place, right? So it seems like a catch-22, doesn't it? So we explored how you can begin to sense the feelings of fear And and there's really two lenses when we work with fear, and one of them is to feel directly, to contact directly, right in our bodies where it is. No resistance. This is an absolute saying yes. And the other is to offer some space and warmth. If there's not enough space and warmth, we can't contact. And if there's not contact, there's not real presence. So... With him, I encouraged him to practice. This, for some people, it's very helpful. Just bringing his hand to his heart where he felt fear. And letting his breath, not to let go of his breath and be with the fear, but to feel the fear and breathe with it. And let the breath help to offer some space and kindness, right, to the fear. And as he did it, he's told me, okay, it's still there, but there's room for it, and that makes all the difference. So that was the next interview, that he kind of went back knowing his intention was to kind of bless the fear with with a kind of presence and kindness. The third time he came, he had practiced a lot with the judgments and the fear, and he had really practiced saying yes and offering a kind of space. And he told me that he dropped into a sadness that was deeper than he had ever experienced. 
And it was a sadness that kind of sensed his whole incarnation and how many moments he had lost to that feeling of, I'm not doing it right. And it was like a grief for missed moments. And we can all sense that in our lives. How many moments have we sacrificed to that belief and feeling that there's something basically wrong, or I'm going to fail, or someone else is going to disapprove? Those were not lived moments. or not, not, That's not actually right. They weren't moments where we got to really live and inhabit our fullness. So I um, call this like a soul sadness, that kind of sadness where we really sense the, the shape of our lives and we sense the moment, the, there's a kind of grief and it's a healthy grief. It's a, a very wise recognition of how we've been in a trance and there's kind of this yearning to really be here for our lives. As I mentioned to um, to one of the groups, it's really that our deepest despair sometimes is the sense that we're kind of skimming the surface, that we're not really arriving, that we're really not here for the moments, we're always on our way somewhere else, and there's always that sense that we're not enough as we are right here. This moment's not enough. And then we get to the finish line, and we've always been trying to get somewhere, because we weren't there yet. And it's the same thing with in our meditation, that we always have this feeling we need to do a little more before we can really just relax and allow, just allow this life to unfold. There's always a sense we have to set it up a little more, quiet down a little more, be somewhere more. So he had this sense of this soul sadness for how many moments had been lost to um, that kind of judging, that kind of self-doubt, And as he kept presence with that, the same way, just breathing with it, his hand on his heart, he heard a kind of whisper from what he felt like was his awakened heart. And the whisper was, to him was, nothing is wrong, nothing has ever been wrong. When he heard that, it was, he didn't know he, he just said that all there was was a sense of that of awareness and streams of experience just coming through, playing through. And there's some it's a really beautiful inquiry. Like who would you be if you let go of the belief that something's wrong? I mean, who who would we be if we didn't buy in at all to any notion that something's wrong? it's said in a flipped way, to be without anxiety about imperfection. I mean, just imagine, really, if we were without anxiety about imperfection. I mean, just a glimmer. When I just stop enough for a glimmer, there's, this, there's a kind of um, an upwelling of happiness. There's such a freedom that's possible. Srinar Sargadatta said that upon realization, we can't describe it too much in positive terms. Sometimes the only way to describe it is that we recognize there's nothing wrong with me anymore. 
So for this man, over the rest of the month, his practice, that, that spiral of recognizing what's happening and allowing, uh, went deeper and deeper so that he'd really notice and there was no resistance at all to the experience. And he had a shift that the Buddha described as really the shift that has to do with awakening, where instead of being that separate self that was fighting his experience, controlling his experience, he became that loving presence that just recognized and allowed. It's a shift from the way, being a wave, a self that's a wave fighting other waves, to realizing you're the ocean that includes the waves, but doesn't need to fight anything. Read you um, just a little bit from Rumi that I love, a poem called Wax. When I see you and how you are, I close my eyes to the other. For your Solomon's seal, I become wax throughout my body. I wait to be light. I give up opinions on all matters. I become the reed flute for your breath. You were inside my hand. I kept reaching around for something. I was inside your hand, but I kept asking questions of those who know very little. I must have been incredibly simple or drunk or insane to sneak into my own house and steal money, to climb over the fence and take my own vegetables. But no more. I've gotten free of that ignorant fist that was pinching and twisting my secret self. The universe and the light of the stars come through me. I am the crescent moon put up over the gate to the festival. So this is the blessing of taking refuge in the Dharma, that when we entrust ourselves to the waves, when we are just simply, this practice has got a simplicity and a courage to it, that we just are noticing and really saying yes, really allowing. And it's coming again and again from the stories into where the energies live most fully in our bodies. There's no, there's no healing unless we open to the experience in our bodies. I remember a few years ago hearing uh, one Tibetan teacher describe this process of awakening from the trance of fear as Dakini bliss. And I want to tell you a little about the words because it had an effect on me. Dakinis are these deities that really embody the radiance of compassion. And um, the awakening of the Dakinis is by absolutely surrendering and allowing the waves of this human experience to move through. So it's in the moments of saying, absolutely saying yes, not resisting at all to what's happening, that in that non-resisting, we open to this, this luminosity of presence and love that's really our nature. And I remember when I, um, when I heard that expression, I remember thinking to myself, okay, the next time fear comes up, you know, Dakini Bliss, that's where I'm going, you know. And, but what it was 
and in a way there was some grasping with that, but it was all it also had a um, feeling of realizing fear as a portal for awakening. Everything's a portal for awakening. But because fear is so intense, the degree of presence that's required to open to fear actually allows us to discover the vastness, which is home. It's home. Mm. Let me see. I'd like to mention the other refuges um, because there's a real beauty to the way they weave together in um, our practice and to say that fear is about severed belonging. It's about feeling that we're separate. And so refuge in the Sangha in feeling our belonging with each other is um, part of what teaches us the truth that we really aren't doing it on our own. And I've seen many people get have this idea that, okay, I'm going to be with the fear, and, and then a sense of almost being re-traumatized or are finding that they're just running through again and again um, the same feeling of real anguish. And the truth is we can be re-traumatized by just opening to the raw, raw energy of fear if we don't have enough resourcefulness, um, enough sense of of safety or balance or humor or resilience. And so for many people, the beginnings of opening to some of the deep fear, especially when there's been abuse or trauma, is um, with another person that's safe, a container, that there's something that holds us. Just like a child is so soothed by his or her mother's embrace in the face of fear, share with you one summer evening during a violent thunderstorm, a mother was tucking her son into bed. She was about to turn off the light when he asked with a tremor in his voice, Mommy, will you sleep with me tonight? The mother smiled and gave him a reassuring hug. I can't, dear. I have to sleep in Daddy's room. A long silence was broken at last by his shaky little voice, the big sissy. So refuge in the sangha is really, um, it's, it's what happens in Kalyana Mitta groups, the spiritual friends groups, or 12-step groups, or the groups here, or with our good friends. Sometimes at workshops I'll have people um, get together and, and describe some of their fears, and one of the beauty, beautiful realizations that comes out of that and it is that it's not my fear, it's the fear. We really start getting it. But there's a way in which we easily forget and get so caught in the sense of separation that when fear arises, we feel like something's wrong with me for having the fear. We add another layer on. This is um, written by Araya Mountain Dreamer. She says at the end of a very long day, she was teaching a meditation workshop, a small, thin woman in an oversized parka introduced herself as Isabel. Can I do this meditation on my own, she asked. Yes, I said, I'm sure you can, although many people find it easier to establish a meditation practice with the help of a group. 
It's just hard to keep up the discipline on your own. But what will it give me? What will I get if I do this every day? Her tone took on a whining quality, and I felt my irritation rise as she continued. How fast will it work? Will I feel a difference after a week? How will I know it's working? This was exactly the kind of thing I detested, the quest for the quick fix, the instant meditation society. The desire for guaranteed outcomes, a simple answer. Do this and you will get that. My sons were waiting for me and I wanted to go home. I took a deep breath, looked directly at Isabel, and set my knapsack down on the floor. I tried to slow down my words, thinking that if maybe I spoke slower, I'd feel more patient. Well, I said, meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. It can help you become more aware of what's going on within and around you, and this can help reduce stress. My best advice is to try it and just be patient with yourself. I picked up my bag and started to button my coat. I really did have to leave, and I wanted to get out while I was feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. (laughs) But as I started to move away, Isabel suddenly reached out and grabbed my arm with surprising strength. But what I want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on real panic, is will it help me find God? If I meditate, will I have an experience of something or someone out there listening, something really with me? A wave of desperation swept out from her through me, and I was surprised to find my eyes filling with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or a guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable or unwilling to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through months or years. I put my hand gently over Isabel's where it gripped my arm. It's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times, I said. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. Her hand relaxed a little beneath mine and she started to cry. We talked a while longer. There is no them. There's only us. When I left, I did not leave one of them. I said goodbye to one of us, a human being doing the best she can, searching for the home for which all our hearts long. So I I share that with you because it's very easy to get to be in a retreat and get into a kind of a bubble of me working with my stuff, the eyeing and mying, my fear. It's the fear. And we're all in it together. And sometimes in the retreat, through just the feeling of the presence of others or in an interview, or seeing another and sensing their struggle, or at home, It's that sense of our companionship that reminds us that we are not separate, there is a belonging. So we take refuge in that. That's refuge in the Sangha. Then finally, way to... um, just to perhaps close is to talk a little bit about what we mean as refuge in the Buddha or in Buddha nature. I, I remember hearing one story about a very frightened man um, going to see the Dalai Lama and saying, how do I work with my fear? 
And his response was to let yourself be held in the arms of the Buddha. So taking refuge in Buddha nature is really taking refuge in whatever our experience is of the ultimate, of that heart and awareness that really is our source. But sometimes we take refuge by invoking it and it feels a bit like we're calling on something outside us. I know for myself when I'm afraid I'll call on what I sense as the beloved. Some, a sense of a kind of field of um, radiance and light and love. And I'll invoke it, invite it, call on it, breathe it in, breathe out into it. A kind of, I'll feel the fear and kind of offer it and surrender it into that. And I'm calling on Buddha nature. And the reason it works when we call on Buddha nature is because it's the truth. It's what we are. So we're calling on what we are and in the remembering that helps carry us back home. So for me, when I'm calling on that loving energy and, and allowing it to hold the fear and offering the fear into that, what I discover is that that is what I am. But at first it felt like I was calling on something outside. It says, John O'Donohue puts it, he says, prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. Prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. So when we take refuge and we call on Buddha nature, just remembering to call on Buddha nature, just that remembering, it's kind of like a, a river emptying, emptying itself into the ocean. It helps us just release ourselves into what really is our source. It carries us home. And we all have that longing. This is uh, Relka. He says, I yearn to belong to something, to be contained in an all-embracing mind that sees me as a single thing. I yearn to be held in the great hands of your heart. Oh, let them take me now. Into them I place these fragments, my life, and you, God, spend them however you want. So, we take refuge in Buddha nature, and it can be in different language, with different images, but we're taking refuge in what we intuit is pure awareness and the expression of that awareness in love. And when we're feeling fear and we do that, it allows us to remember what's big enough for the fear. It allows us to come home to the sea of wakefulness, our nature. And as one friend put it, if you can remember you're the ocean, you're not going to be afraid of the waves. So this is really the awakening from the trance of separation and fear. It's a remembering what we are. And do we describe tonight three pathways, the three refuges, And they all are completely interwoven. You really can't separate them. I started with refuge in the Dharma because a lot of the meditation instructions start us right here. Whatever arises, we're talking about fear tonight, but it could be wanting or restlessness, our sleepiness, whatever it is, that's the portal because all you need to do 
is bring an attention, a presence to that. And the very nature of being pre- bring presence to that allows you to become that presence, inhabit it. We take refuge in the Sangha, in that field of relatedness, to remember the truth of our belonging. And in Buddha nature, to realize the awareness that really is home. Sometimes uh, there's a question of, you know, how come Vipassana teachers don't talk about enlightenment? So the word enlightenment is almost like a cementing into an entity of realization, you know. What we do talk about a lot, though, is awakened moments. And that the more and more moments that we, we meet what arises with this unconditional presence, the more it becomes our familiar home. There's a, there's a continuity of remembering. And we begin to trust and inhabit that awareness. And that becomes more real. It's like the fear still rises up. There's still some lag time where we get kind of hooked in. But the lag time decreases. So this is really the, um, the promise and the invitation of our practice to face and allow and say yes to what's here and in so doing to discover the vastness of who we are. So we'll just sit for a little bit together. Just in these moments to notice what's happening and offer the blessing of presence, allowing, caring presence.
This talk was given by Tara Bratch at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 7, 2005. It is an offering of the 